DBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. George Gershwin's Porgy and Bess has deep roots in Southern Black culture and the racist stereotypes of its time. It really feels like such an American classic, these songs and arias. However, there's the really tough thing about the portrayal of African-American life. I'm Virginia Prescott. Today on Second Thought, we dig into the complicated racial dynamics of the classic but controversial opera. And the hair and cosmetics industry has for years cultivated a narrow standard of what is beautiful. The $2.5 billion African-American beauty market is turning the tide on those images. My babies looked exactly like me. And I thought that they were most beautiful people Mm. on the planet. And so if they looked just like me, how could I hate myself and look at their faces, which looked exactly like mine, and think that something was wrong with them? Here are a roundtable of guests on the ideals, realities, and new definitions of black beauty. Coming up on On Second Thought, first, the news. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Most of the world's best-known operas were not written in English. Among those that were, Porgy and Bess is the most controversial. You may know some of the lyrics from George Gershwin's 1935 opera, considering one song that's been covered by superstars, from Sam Cooke to Nina Simone to the Zombies. That's Summertime, performed by soprano Betty Lane from the Houston Opera's 1976 production of Porgy and Bess. While the music is highly celebrated, criticism of the opera's representation of black culture and dialect by a white composer has followed Porgy and Bess for decades. The Atlanta Opera is staging Porgy and Bess between March 7th and 15th, and we wanted to know more about that production. Dr. Naomi Andre is a professor of women's and African-American studies at the University of Michigan. She's scholar and residence at the Seattle Opera and author of Black Opera, History, Power, Engagement. And she's with us in the studio. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you coming in. Also joined by opera singer Morris Robinson, perhaps better known in his hometown of Atlanta as Duran. He is performing the role of Porgy for three of the five nights at the Atlanta Opera production. Morris, thank you so much for coming on back home. Thanks for having me here. Oh my goodness, that voice. (laughs) 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 Especially juxtaposed against you two. (laughs) Well, do people just hear you speak and think, what does this man do for a living? I get a lot of questions. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. I can imagine. Well, let me first, for people who may not know the opera, can you give us the spoiler-free thumbnail plot of Porgy and Bess? Yeah, Porgy and Bess is a very interesting story. It's about a love affair, really. Uh, You have lots of different elements of the African-American community displayed. Everyone has a rank and a place in this community. You have the church ladies. You have the guys. You have the hard workers. You have the couple that wants to send their kid to college. You have the drug dealer. You have all these things. And and Porgy's like the noble guy. Everyone looks up to him. Uh, They sing about him before he comes out. And when he comes out, they greet him with fanfare because he's the guy that they kind of look up to. So when something goes bad in the community, he's the person that stands up. And this love affair that he has with the most unlikely person, you get to go through that journey with them all the way to the end. So I won't put out any spoilers. It's just it's Mm -hmm. a wonderful love story with a beautiful arc. And, uh, yeah, you'll enjoy it. Naomi, anything you want to add? 
Sure. This is a story about an African-American community that's based on a real community, Cabbage Row from uh, South Carolina in Charleston. And in the opera, it's called Catfish Row. And I understand that you can see both Cabbage Row and Catfish Row down there today when you go visit. And you get to see this community outside of the white city. And you see that they hang out together and they have all the, the good and bad. And basically, the opera is the unfolding of what happens to this community. Very occasionally, you have some white characters who come in, the detective, the coroner, and you get to see that this is really a Jim Crow situation. Mm. Interestingly enough, Gershwin doesn't give the white characters music to sing, but has them speak. Uh, And so there's a real distinction. Porgy and Bess was called the first jazz opera and the first folk opera, which raises the question of well, how can how can you do a folk opera if you're not one of the folks, you know, that you're, you're looking from the outside? You mean as far as the composer standpoint yeah, goes? Yeah, exactly. Well, I think that Gershwin did live amongst the community. Uh, what he did put on paper was tr- to try to replicate that which he heard. As an African-American who spent a lot of time in the low country, there's still even now some remnants of what he put in this score that reflect and you can see in Black Church on Sunday morning. I made a video about it, actually, because at the very end, that whole thing, oh, Lord, I'm on my way, that whole mm. part, there's kind of that syncopated clap thing that he nailed it because that's exactly what they do now. So the authenticity of it, I think, is best as he could possibly put it on paper. Well, I'm interested in the point that Gershwin wrote it for African-American singers in 1935, a time when minstrelsy was a thing. And at one time, Porgy and Bess was almost produced with the white actor and singer Al Jolson playing it in blackface, but Gershwin insisted that only African Americans perform these parts. You know, I, I, Naomi would know this more than I would, but I would think that he, uh, first of all, just to keep the authenticity of what it is that he was trying to capture, he knew he needed a certain type of person on stage to do it, yeah. and they'd get it. This is virtuosic music. It's written. Yeah. It's very difficult. Uh, you need to be well-trained in music to, to understand the score and to perform it to perfection. But also, there's certain unwritten things, certain syncopations, certain natural rhythms that come with this. And I don't think that someone from Europe could do it as well as somebody that grew up in America, mm-hmm. especially with the black church experience. So maybe that was part of the real the, the deal. I think also because he was an immigrant or second generation, first generation. Immigrant. First generation, he yeah. Was, he was Jewish. So I don't know if he was really all the way white. Like, <laughs> well, to, especially you know, in that especially part. Especially in this part time. of the country. Yep. So, you know, there was always a connection between the Jewish American and the African American of, you know, we help each other, we look out for each other. And I think that he felt that there was a time where we weren't allowed. Paul Robeson, one of the best bass mm-hmm. voices to ever exist, never got a chance to sing on operatic stages. It wasn't until 1948-ish when uh, Marianne Anderson, 45? Um, in January of 1955, Marian Anderson sang so, Ulrika at the Metropolitan Opera. So we're 20 years before that. Right. So, yeah. he, you know, here's a vehicle. I'm going to make sure that I'm going to give you guys an opportunity to do it, and I'm going to make sure that no one else can do it. So for that, I commend him, and I commend the, the courage of him doing so and, and making it such that that was the case. And his estate has continued to make sure that only uh, African-Americans or people of African descent sing it. Even in South Africa, they wouldn't allow a white production. They get around it, though. I mean, I've done my first production, actually, was La Scala. Mm-hmm. la di da my first production <laughs> was La Scala. I don't know if that was insane or courageous, but I, <laughs> it was accomplished. So it was, well, well, I want to ask you more about that because okay. you started, you began your uh, 
career as an opera singer in about 1999. But wow. this this opportunity at La Scala didn't come until 2016. Right. So had you avoided the role? I mean, I know mm-hmm. there was there are some people who didn't really want to play that role of yeah. of Porgy or play in the in the opera. I was going to tell you, I didn't just avoid the role. I I avoided the whole opera. Mm-hmm. You know. Uh, one of the things you heard early on in the opera in your career as a young African American opera singer is you want to stay away from certain things so that you don't get pigeonholed and typecast. Mm-hmm. I'm a big black man, bald head. I'm from the South. I have a very deep voice, mm-hmm. and I've said this before. People, when they, as soon as they hear me speak and find out that I'm a singer, there are two things they automatically assume: you can sing Old Man River really, really well, <laughs> mm-hmm. and you probably can sing Porgy really, really well. Now, mu- musically. Porgy is written for more of a bass, baritone, baritone voice. I'm a real bass. So I never thought it would be an issue for me. But I purposely stayed away from that repertoire for 17 years uh, until I had firmly planted myself in German and Italian literature. I did all the Puccini, Verdi, Mozart, you know, that I could do. And then when asked to do it, it was a scholar calling. It's like, okay, if I'm ever going to have a reason to justify stepping out into this, Historically, I'll be able to say, well, it was a scholar, so you don't say no to them but <laughs> once. So <laughs> I took the, took the opportunity. I want to ask you about that, Naomi, because people thought they may get pigeonholed by playing this role, whether in opera or musical theater or even on film. Harry Belafonte, for example, refused to play the role on film. Can you give us some of the context around that, this racial dynamics of Porgy and Bess? There are three basic questions that have hung around Porgy and Bess, particularly in the literature of what's written, as well as how people talk about it. The first one is, is it an opera or is it musical theater? Part of it has to do with Gershwin's position in the musical canon. Gershwin was not considered an art music composer. Part of it has to do with the topic and subject matter. What do you mean an opera about black life with lots of black bodies, you know, singers on stage? The second question around Porgy and Bess is what is the full version? Because he died just two years after and didn't get to oversee another full production. And so when you see a production of Porgy and Bess today, you're going to see a version of that. And it's not because there's any problem with what an opera company does or not, but it's just he, Gershwin, didn't get to go back and put the opera sort of a more manageable size of an opera together. But we now have a critical edition where we at least know what all the notes and the music and the text sort of lines up with the score, which is what we hadn't had for a while. And the third? And the third issue is, is Porgy racist or not? And that is a tough question. I'll speak very personally that I find it a very bittersweet experience. I love the music. I've grown up with the music and all the wonderful covers by people from Miles Davis and Nina Simone and Billie Holiday to Janis Joplin and other. I mean, it has been it really feels like such an American classic, these um, songs and arias. However, there's the really tough thing about the portrayal of African-American life. Right. They're they're. Drug addicted, they're, you know, begging for a living. Um, In the first 10 minutes of the opera, this is one of the things I talk about. The first 10 minutes of the opera, you see me coming out as a beggar. You see a drug dealer coming out. You see a drug head guy come out with his drug head drunken girlfriend and a murder. Yeah. And they're all gambling. And we're gambling while this is happening. So (laughs) every stereotype that you want or don't want happens in the first 10 minutes. Mm -hmm. But it also makes the drama happen immediately, too. That's why the story flows so well. You know, my problem is an African-American. We talked about this before. Um, Being that I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm post-civil rights, whenever that might have been. uh, I was born in 1969. King King was killed in 68. So 
you know, I walk around here in Atlanta and my dad points out places where he couldn't eat. My dad still lives here. Places where he couldn't watch a movie. I went to a high school that he could not go to. You know, I went to colleges that he could not go to. And, you know, I always carry this what if factor around with me or, you know, what what would I have done in that time frame? And I have to put myself in that mindset. So when the white man walks in and controls the scene, I have to be humble. Mm -hmm. I have to be quiet or else I'll get you know, strong up. So these types of mm-hmm. things, I have to transform into something that I've never become before and something that I've often despised and questioned, you know, because I didn't live that experience. The other part of it is I have to bring, I'm here in Atlanta, Georgia, I'm home. I have a lot of friends, teammates, classmates, church members that have never been to the opera. And I'm inviting them to see this show. And the first thing they're going to see is we're wearing rags, we're shucking and jiving, we're gambling, we're mm-hmm. drunk, and we kill somebody. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> I have turmoil with the idea of bringing them to this with shame, saying, eh, I wish you didn't have to come see this. Maybe I, maybe I should invite you to Aida. You know, but, mm. but that's part of the story. And it's a tough it's a tough deal for us artists. We're not just robots that go on stage and do what we're told. We have emotions and psychological aspects that we have to incorporate into our interpretation. So it's very difficult sometimes. You know, the opera is an interesting thing. I mean, I am by no means an expert in opera. But we know that things like Madama Butterfly, very mm-hmm. often performed by a Caucasian woman with, you know, bat wing mm-hmm. eyeliner or right. something like that. There is a, there's a way that... In that field, the depiction of others is thought to be, you know, anyone's grab bag. Correct. How is that changing, and or should it change? <clears throat> I'll say this: one of the best butterflies on the planet <laughs> right now, arguably with no exception, is a African American soprano by the name of Latonya Moore. Mm-hmm. She's singing at the Metropolitan Opera. She stepped in, and they got emails and mails and letters. It was the best performance of Madame Butterfly on that stage, probably in the last forty years. And she didn't get a chance to sing it again at the Met, but she's oh. singing Serena in Porgy and Bess. You feel me? So, uh-huh. if we open up this thing, then what what does she do? My guests are Dr. Naomi Andre, professor, author, and scholar in residence at the Seattle Opera. Also, Morris Robinson, Atlanta's Noam Asderon. He's going to be performing the role of Porgy for the Atlanta Opera's upcoming production of Porgy and Bess. In your role as Porgy, you will be singing uh, a, a song. This, again, is from the 1976 uh, recording from the Houston Grand Opera. This is Donnie Ray Albert singing I Got Plenty of Nothing. Of course. Dad, so be with me, because the things that have prized like the stars in the skies all are free. Oh, I got plenty of nothing, and nothing's plenty for me. I got my gal, got my song, got him the whole day long. That is Donnie Ray Albert from the Houston Grand Opera production of Porgy and Bess. Morris, what is that like for you, singing the role of Porgy? And how do you prepare for it? When I heard Donnie Ray's voice, I got really happy because when I got this assignment, he's the first person I called. Oh, really? I said, should I do it? Should I do it? Heck, yeah, you should do it. <laughs> and I'm going to teach you every note. So I was performing in Dallas, and I went to his house twice a week, every week. I didn't. He didn't charge me one dime. He says, I'm passing this on to you because you're the next guy to carry the torch. Mm. He said, just bring my wife flowers every day. Oh. So I brought flowers, and I sat in his living room, and he taught me every note of this whole show. And in, in fact, he says... Ignore the cuts. I'm going to teach you the whole opera. So whenever you go somewhere else, if they take this out or add this, you'll already know the music. 
So thank and you, Donna Ray, for that. So. My <laughs> sense is that this is happening with a lot of black singers where they learn the full version so that oh, yeah. with whatever yeah. production is being done, they can bring something in. They already know it. Yeah. It's just the artistry that's required of the singers is incredible. That's why when we did the critical edition, I, I knew it. And then comes the sense of responsibility and calling. You know, the tradition of honor, the tradition of respect, the tradition of uh, excellence, black excellence, doing it to the highest level. Um, I felt all of that pressure and I feel all of that responsibility. So that in of itself is a wonderful feeling to be able to be chosen to be one of the ones that can carry the torch and, and perform it to the level of perfection that these guys did before me. So. Would, would you have done it in, at in 2001 when you were a younger man, not established? I, I don't know if I was bright enough not to, mm-hmm. but I was told not to, and huh. I probably would not have done it. No, no. We were talking earlier about casting only African-Americans in Porgy and Bess. In the movie and TV business, African-American actors have said for years that there are narrow roles for them to play, which is changing. Certainly not there yet, but it is uh, some progress. Is the same trajectory going on in opera? The effort is to find ways to incorporate the stories that are relevant to today's society such that it makes sense to, if you're going to go with this this paradigm of, of casting like figures in the roles, then that will be there. Um, opera and arts in general should be colorblind. You know, it should be about the music and it should be about who can sing the music the best and who get, delivers the text the best and who tells the story. And it, it should be that way. A lot of times, at least historically, it hasn't been. So that's that's not something we've achieved just yet. But you've, you've broken a lot of ground in that in those roles. I'm the exception, not the rule. <laughs> okay, I, well, and t- it's not because I'm great. It's because probably because I'm a base and there's only 10 of us in the world. Uh, it's also, uh, you know, times are changing, but I think that I, me- I mentioned something yesterday. In this business, we have to keep in mind, I've never been hired by a black artistic manager. I've never been conducted by a black conductor. I've never been directed by a black director. They don't, they, they do exist, but they don't exist at levels that we've been afforded to sing. So we have to start at the top, top down to broaden the perspective and broaden the opportunities of, of, of us on stage so that the stage represents demographically what the population represents mm-hmm. and the populations that studies as music represents. So, Right. What, what is the best way? This is, you know, a conundrum, right? Offering roles for uh, African-American performers while perpetuating some stereotypes, certainly. So what is the best way to put on a production of Gershwin's opera while acknowledging this problematic element? There are a lot of important themes around representation and who should sing what and how somebody sings something. So while it's a nice thought to think opera should be colorblind, when we go out there as audiences, we're not. We cannot not see race. We cannot not see gender. So what needs to happen in 2020 is we need to be careful with these things. We need program notes. We need directors who think about this. And we need this to be brought up to the surface. Should Latanya Moore sing Madame Butterfly? an African-American woman singing a Japanese character? Absolutely. However, because opera is a little different than the movies and Broadway and TV, we need to say a lot of this is about the voice and not everybody can do this. And voices come in many different bodies, which is beautiful. And so there is an element of colorblindness, but it needs opera, I think, is a special situation. Having shows like this where we talk about it is a wonderful thing because then the larger audience can say, wait a minute, am I supposed to like this? Am I supposed to be nervous? And it's like, no, it is okay. 
we've got you covered. There's a little suspension of disbelief when we watch something on the opera stage. We don't <laughs> expect that to be the real reality. I think people want to love and enjoy these new things, and particularly the people who are fans, diehard fans, and who's loved this music before we started asking these questions. But if we can talk about it and put some words to it, that's the way to handle it. Yeah. So, Marissa, I, one last question. Yes. Will you play Porgy in the future again? Um, I'm contracted to play it one more time at a very big place that I won't name. But I, oh, come on. I, I'm, I'm, I'm toying with it. I love singing the music, and I will sing Porgy again. Uh, there's a practical side of things, too. I'm a father, and uh, mm-hmm. I got a kid going to college, so I won't walk away from the opportunities if, it was the right, if it's the right opportunity. Um, I don't know if you want to put this on the radio, but it will have lots of zeros behind the number if I'm singing it again. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> well, you know, it's a long night. It's a long night of really, really, you start off as Zorastro, <laughs> and you end the night as like Scarpia or... So it's much higher in your voice. That is something that is really tough. And it has to do with when you get after three plus hours of singing, you do not want to have the highest tessitura, the cruising (laughs) altitude where you are up in the stars. And yet that's some of the tough stuff. That that trio trio at the very end is some of the hardest singing for any bass, bass, baritone ever at the end of a three and a half hour night of falling and crawling your knees and wailing because, you know, Beth is gone, you know. So, yeah, yeah, it's a big deal. And yet it looks somehow effortless. Well, that's what they pay me to do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I want to thank you so much, both of you, for joining me for this discussion. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you. Opera singer Morris Robinson. Should I call you Duran? You can call me Duran in Atlanta. (laughs) (laughs) He's going to be performing the role of Porgy for three of the five nights of the Atlanta Opera's upcoming production of George Gershwin's Porgy and Bess. Dr. Naomi Andre is professor of women's and African-American studies at the University of Michigan. She is the inaugural scholar in residence at the Seattle Opera and author of Black Opera, History, Power, and Engagement. We're going to close out the conversation with another one of the those famous covers of Summertime. This is Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong. Coming up, the African-American beauty market is now a $2.5 billion industry that began entirely self-made. We're going to have a conversation about black hair and standards of beauty, which continue to have ripple effects today. Stay with us. That's when On Second Thought continues. I'm Virginia Prescott. From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. As Black History Month draws to a close, we're talking about a subject with a long through line in African-American identity, hair. Just yesterday, my daughter came into the house and said, Daddy, how come I don't have good hair? 
I wonder how she came up with that idea. That is from comedian Chris Rock's 2009 documentary, Good Hair. And with Hair Love winning Best Animated Short at this year's Oscars, that conversation about black hair and standards of beauty continues to have ripple effects today. Well, today we're going to add some voices and perspectives to that discussion. Deneen Milner is an author, journalist, and publisher. She recently focused on black beauty on her podcast, Speakeasy with Deneen. Deneen, so great to have you back with us. Thank you for having me. Alelia Bundles is a journalist and historian whose book, On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker, chronicles the originator of commercial black hair and beauty products, who also happens to be her great-great-grandmother, and she's joining us via Skype. Alelia, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. And Brandon Patton is co-founder of Evan Alexander Grooming in Atlanta, which helps black men struggling with personal pain points like growing and maintaining beards or combating thin hair and the effects on their self-esteem. And Brandon, I'm so glad you're with us. So grateful to be here. Thank you. All right. I want to just begin by talking about some of the beauty standards that you grew up with. What kinds of messages did you internalize about what beauty looked like? Maybe something you internalized and had to unlearn. Hmm. Denise's so, making a big face. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long story. I'll try to keep it short. But I grew up in the 80s, and, you know, it was the world of Jordas jeans, blonde hair, blue eyes, super pencil thin, and I fit none of those characteristics at all. And that really sort of when you glom into those kinds of messages that you don't fit when you're coming of age, it lasts for a long time. Mm -hmm. And I didn't shake myself out of being uncomfortable with what I look like in the mirror until I had my own daughters when I was 28 years old. So what effect did that have on you? My babies looked exactly like me. And I thought that they were most beautiful people Mm. on the planet. And so if they looked just like me, how could I hate myself and look at their faces, which looked exactly like mine, and think that something was wrong with them? So obviously the message was coming from someplace else. Absolutely. How about for you, Alilia? So I'm a little older than (laughs) Deneen. I grew up in the 50s and 60s, so I'm part of that first generation that really went from perms and straightened hair to afros. So when I was coming of age, many of us were changing our hair. And of course, mine was complicated because I come from a family of uh, parents who were both involved in the hair care industry. My mother's family was the Walker family, and my dad was president of Summit Labs, which manufactured chemical hair straighteners. And uh, then I wanted an afro, and that was a bit of a battle in my house. But my mother, who was very wise about all of this, took me to the Walker Beauty School and had this Walker students roll my hair up on permanent wave rods so that I had a big Angela Davis-sized afro until my perm grew out. (laughs) (laughs) How about for you, Brandon? Yeah, uh, I think my experience was a little bit unique. Um, You know, I'm an 80s baby, and uh, I was raised by my grandmother, who was a little bit more conservative in terms of growing up. And then also I was raised by my mom at, you know, she was 18 when she had me. So she came through the 90s where it, things were colorful. Uh, they were very more expressive. Um, however, my, since my grandmother raised me, she was more being the more conservative, worked in the bank. Her thing was um, you have to be sellable, right? You can't get a job with your hair just not looking well, Um 
then you might be stuck somewhere that you don't want to be. So for me, it was always about getting a haircut, making sure you look nice, presentable at all times, because that was the best way that you will be able to operate in corporate America. Well, let's pick up on that because, you know, there is this idea of cultural and societal narratives about what is and isn't beautiful, but also what is appropriate. You're talking about things that get policed in corporate America. You decided to grow locks. What impact did that have on your experience in the in the workplace? Yeah, well, I grew locks and everybody was kind of like blown away because I always had a short haircut. And so when I was working for uh, this particular company, uh, the response that they gave me, even though my performance was great, like I performed well, their approach to how they received me was a lot differently. And so that kind of was very frustrating because I was giving my all. But the way that they would respond to me as if, you know, I was like an alien out of a movie. Mm. Um, and then when I cut my hair, then they began to show me more uh, love in a sense. Uh, so they treated me huh. different, even though my performance was the same. And that was quite uh, frustrating for me. Yeah, that's infuriating and probably why I am wholly unemployable to this day. <laughs> Because I refuse to fit into what other people's standards are for the way that my hair grows out of my head. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do that. There are things that I just cannot and refuse to change. And one of them is my skin color and the way that I present myself um, and my hair. Mm -hmm. I went natural when it wasn't in vogue to do so um, back in the 90s. And I did it because my daughter went to preschool and came back and wanted hair like Becky. Oh. And then maybe a couple of weeks later, she and her cousin thought it would be a good idea to cut her hair off so that she could grow hair like Becky. Mm. And I had to send a message to my daughters that this is okay. Like this, this hair, curly and beautiful and stretching to the sun, is a good thing. It's not something to be ashamed of. And I've been natural ever since. And both of my daughters have always had natural hair. I've never been touched by chemicals. Only a couple of times have they been straightened. Um, And, you know, they're very clear about why that is. I'm speaking with Alelia Bundles, journalist and author of On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker. Also with Brandon Patton, he's co-founder of Evan Alexander Grooming in Atlanta. They make products for black men. And Deneen Milner, author, journalist and host of the Speakeasy with Deneen podcast. I want to ask Alelia about that because you just said you grew up in a family where the tradition of hair care has been passed down through generations, beginning with your great-great-grandmother, Madam C.J. Walker, the first self-made female millionaire in America. And her products help people look and feel another way. How are they different from the the kind of toxic chemical or straightening products that Deneen mentioned? You know, a couple of things that come to mind. First of all, you know, Madam Walker was really about trying to have healthy hair and to grow hair. So her main product was Madam Walker's wonderful hair grower, which addressed scalp infections and people who were going bald. So that was really her primary interest. Her initial goal was to have hair, not to have straight hair. Mm -hmm. So that's a really important distinction. And I would say that, you know, part of my experience sort of speaking to Deneen and Brandon's experience in the workplace For many years, I was a producer and then an executive with NBC and ABC. And my last five years, I was director of talent development. I noticed that people were judged by their hair. What was your hairstyle? And that was a period of time when it was really very rare for women, black women on television 
to have natural hair. But now I can see an entire sea change where women who bring their talents and their brains also bring their natural hair. So I'm really glad to see that evolution. Well, there are a number of examples of how hair is actively policed, if I can use that word. It was not until 2017 that the U.S. military halted its ban on locks. And right here in Georgia, Decatur Elementary School put up pictures of, quote, appropriate versus inappropriate haircuts, where inappropriate included fades and braids. And this year, a Georgia state senator proposed an anti-hair-based discrimination bill. What impact do you think that is going to have on how people feel in the workplace? You know, I just feel like we are looking at a generation that is a bunch of rule breakers (laughs) and they really don't care what you think about their hair and whether or not you think it's appropriate, air quotes. I don't think there's any law that's going to police their sort of response to the way that they choose to look. But it would be awesome if we could stop employers and others from discriminating against us because we choose to wear our hair the way that we choose to wear our hair. Go ahead, Brandon. The beauty of it right now is that we have more options, right? Before, you know, when my grandmother was coming uh, up and my mother, like you didn't have the option, right? Now, if someone doesn't accept you for who you are, even though you are well qualified for the position, you have a lot of options. You can go to YouTube. You can go to Instagram. You can go do a TikTok. And like, you know, you, you were saying, like, we have a bunch of rule breakers and they will be the next generation who will begin to change and the, the tide of things. So once this generation of people who kind of, you know, setting these rules, putting us in boxes and constrictions and things of that nature and laws, uh, they will soon be gone. And then you have this next generation who will be the policymakers, who will be the employers Absolutely. and things of that nature. Absolutely. And they will change the game. I will tell you that when I actually worked in an office and it's been a long time, the people who gave me the hardest time about my hair, my natural hair, were mm-hmm. black people. Absolutely. It wasn't white folks. Mm-hmm. It was black people who were sort of thinking about the gaze of the white people and what they would do if I came in unpresentable. And it was the white people who were like, oh, your hair looks really cool today. I like your afro. <laughs> oh, I, you know, like, I like your locks. They're really pretty. I get stopped all the time when for my locks. And, you know, it, there's a sea change in the way that people are thinking, I think, now. And it's sometimes it's not just the white folks that need the lessons. It's it's us. We're going to take a quick break and come back to our conversation about concepts of beauty in the black community with Deneen Milner, host of the Speakeasy with Deneen podcast, Brandon Patton from Evan Alexander Grooming, specializing in hair care for black men, and Alelia Bundles. She's author and beauty historian who's profiled her great-grandmother and her great-great-grandmother, Madam C.J. Walker and Alelia Walker. We're listening to the song Video from India Ari. But stay with us. We're going to continue this conversation when On Second Thought returns. We are back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. A Nielsen report from 2018 shows that black women and men spend disproportionately more on beauty products than other groups, up to nine times more by some estimates. Still, the hair and beauty industry hasn't always been there to meet that demand. Today, I'm joined by three people working to bring both awareness and new offerings to the table. Ali Leah Bundles is a journalist and historian and author of Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker, the entrepreneur behind black beauty care and hair care. It's also her great-great-grandmother. Brandon Patton is co-founder of Evan Alexander Grooming in Atlanta, making products for African-American men, mainly 
maintaining beards or combating thinning hair. Deneen Milner, author, journalist, publisher, and host of the Speakeasy with Deneen podcast, which recently featured an episode on beauty. I want to pick up on what was just said right before the break. The idea of social media is an enabler. It lets people express themselves. There are all these videos online about how to contour your face or filters so you don't have any pores. You know, <laughs> So the idea is that you are absolutely perfect all the time. Do we think that is progress? You know, the, the idea of these videos on YouTube, one of the things that it may in some ways be making people see a, an unattainable beauty, which is always the goal of advertising. But I also think it gives people freedom to learn how to style their hair. And now part of the reason I think we are able to see such a range of hairstyles is because the products are different. And those YouTube channels, while they may be showing something that's unattainable, they also are showing people how to work with those products and work with their hair. We all don't have the same texture of hair. I can look at somebody and really admire her hairstyle, but I know my hair texture won't allow me to do what she's done. But then I have to become comfortable with my own hair. So it ultimately gets to be about self-love. And that's a journey that takes a long time. Amen. Well, the self-love thing, that is another thing that I think is happening now, this equation of beauty equals wellness, that it comes from the inside out. You know, if you meditate, Mm. if you take vitamins all the time, you know, if you eat super healthy, then you will be beautiful. What is in that, embedded in that idea that beauty is an inside job? I feel like that's always been sort of the message that African-Americans have given to themselves. I think about my dad and some of the natural products that his grandmother used to use to heal and to beautify. Yeah, you you have to tell the story. Right. Like my dad told me about picking poke salad and how poke salad and uh, spider webs and snot would like heal you. But you know what? I've been doing a whole lot of research on midwifery Mm -hmm. and some of the things that they use to um, alleviate pain is actually in the medicine that they use today in the hospital. And so, you know, like there needs to be some respect for the fact that black folks been knowing how to take care of themselves, how to beautify with a berry off of a tree to make yourself some lipstick. And with that came this idea that nobody else is going to create a product, so we're going to have to figure that out for ourselves. That idea that, you know, now we're seeing things like jade rollers for your skin and seaweed wraps and charcoal everything, these old kind of folky remedies. But How beauty is sold is this idea that if you buy this, you're going to look like the person in the ad or the person on the packaging. So how much of that is guiding the kind of decisions that we make? Well, it's a double-edged sword. You know, on one end, how do you attract people to a product, right? It's very psychological. On the flip side of it, for us, a lot of guys think that it's about beards. Really, it's about self-care and self-love. But me going to talk to a guy, hey, man, let's talk about self-love self and self-care. Eh, it may not really go well. <laughs> However, if I say, hey, you know what? If you drink this smoothie, you take these vitamins, and this is going to help improve your beard. Oh, really? Now, through the advent of that, I'm able to practice, right, self-love and self-care without even having to say it. So a lot of times, you have to go about different ways. Now, it's all about intent. 
and the personal values of these particular products, companies um, that are trying to attract these consumers is what's their intent? What is really the the value and, and, and their mission? And at the end of the day, we do have to attract them in a way to where once they get in, they start implementing these particular practices and they didn't even know that they were doing it until Mm -hmm. years down the road. They're like, man, hmm, self-love and self-care, I really like this thing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so it is a market, certainly, but what you're talking about, you know, I'm thinking of Fenty, Black Up, Tracy Ellis Ross just started her own Mm -hmm. hair care line. So there are a lot of people in the African-American community that are saying that we are driving our own destiny in a way, sort of like Madam C.J. Walker. Alilia, I'm wondering for you, your great-great-grandmother, she put money in the pockets of a lot of people who worked for her. She was a self-made woman. What is the equation here between beauty and empowerment? Well, you know, I think Brandon is really on to something that you have to, the part of this is giving people confidence. And that's certainly what Madam Walker was doing by appealing to her market. She was talking about not just how you style your hair, but also about economic empowerment, about financial independence. So as she was training women to become Walker sales agents, she was also giving them the tools to become economically independent and using that to help them become politically active. So there was a whole package of you look good, you feel better on the inside, you feel better on the, on the outside, and then you use that so as, a, as empowerment. My guests are Deneen Milner, author, journalist, publisher, and host of the Speakeasy with Deneen podcast. Brandon Patton, he's co-founder of Evan Alexander Grooming in Atlanta. And Alelia Bundles, she's a journalist and author of On Her Own Ground, The Life and Times of Madam C.J. Walker. So the black community, beginning with your great-great-grandmother has created this multi-billion dollar industry largely by and for itself. Alilia, is that a source of frustration at all? They had to do it themselves, or is it more a sense of pride that she picked this up on her own? No, I think that it only could come from a woman. And you know, you think about it at the time. Cosmetics companies and hair care companies were not the way that we think of them now as international companies with distribution all over the world. They were really kind of side things that men didn't take very seriously. So it really took women to speak to other women. And now there are products that speak directly to women. But, you know, Sundial Brands, Richelieu Dennis, who founded Sundial Brands, which manufactures MCJW, the Madam Walker line, part of his quest is to say that we have been ghettoized and that our products should be everywhere. We shouldn't be ghettoized. And we really are speaking to women who have particular needs. Oh, can I just tell you how glorious it is to be able to walk in a Target and find products that I used to have to either order in the mail, which is real frustrating if you're doing your hair on a Saturday night and you realize (laughs) you didn't order your products. Um, But, you know, just the access is completely different. Again, I've been natural since 97, 98. And what was available then versus what's available now, even like five years ago, um, is just astounding to me. And it's created this opportunity for black women specifically who've created their own products. These stores, these big box stores are opening their doors to those products. So I no longer have to wait out 
a week and a half for someone to mix something up and send it to me in the mail. Janine, you were talking earlier about the self-policing within the community, that it was the African-American people in the offices and the corporate offices Mm -hmm. that told you, like, you shouldn't be wearing your hair like that. But now we have movements like Alicia Keys has helped spawn this no makeup movement, you know, that go natural. But, you know, when you see somebody who's all maybe processed hair or done up, do you have a judgment about them, about their choices to really invest fully in this idea of what beauty is supposed to look like? Me personally, no. I think that everybody has the right to present themselves exactly the way they want to and should for themselves. I would be the hugest hypocrite on the planet if I turned around and looked at somebody with a weave and, you know, like, the perfect shading and say that somehow what she's doing is wrong. Girl, It's if you like it, I love it. It's your business. It's your face. You do what you do. But there is, in a more general sense, sort of a distinction between the communities, the natural hair community and the people who are not natural. Mm-hmm. And there can be judgment with natural folks who look at someone who has a weave or a wig or, you know, an excessive amount of makeup sort of making a judgment on them and questioning their blackness Mm -hmm. or, you know, whether they really love themselves. Because if you love yourself, then you wouldn't put somebody else's hair in your head or walk around with a bunch of makeup on. So can I just say, can I add to that? So, um, Danine, I'm so with you. You know, I realized that um, I needed not to be the hair police um, (laughs) because sometimes people really want to know what do I think as Madam Walker's great-great-granddaughter. And people are on different hair journeys. We have to let people discover things. But I will say that at my age now, I, I just really have learned to accept my hair. But that didn't happen overnight. And I also think that some of this is generational. I see a lot of my young friends who really want to change things up and they want to do extensions. They want to do curly hair one day and uh, straight hair the next day. And so I I look at that and I think this is some self-expression and that they should be allowed to do that. But I do think that there is an issue if you are ashamed of your natural hair. So that's where we have work to do. Brandon, I want to I want to ask all of you this, but Brandon, I'm thinking as far as the movement has come, there's still a lot of room for growth. So what needs to happen so that a young black child growing up today can believe he or she is beautiful right away? Well, in terms of, uh, you know, speaking of men, I think distinguishing beauty, because what that means for women and what that means for men are entirely different. So we want to distinguish that, like being a beautiful man is being confident, being bold. Right. And. The more education that we can provide and the more symbols that we can show and what that looks like, then young men would be able to see because we need to see if we see it, then we will begin to incorporate it in our day to day living. We have to lead by examples and we have to educate as often as possible. And that's really what we're all about is educating first and then providing the necessary tools that's going to help you on your journey. How about for you, Deneen or Alilia, any thoughts on that? What needs to happen in the way of thinking or products or what to help a black child think you're beautiful just as you are? Oh, God, for me, in my own house, it started from the womb. Like the second that I wiped that goop off of my belly and realized that it was a girl, it started from that second. I went out and I bought clothes that represented who she is. Um, We have to start from conception. Hey, you are beautiful. 
This is the way that your hair grows out of your head, your nose. Oh, my goodness, it's so perfect. Look at your hair stretching out to the sky. Look at your cheekbones, your hips, your booty. Oh, you're so juicy. I love you. Those are things that I say to my kids every day. And they're 20 and 17 at this point. And, you know, like there are times when they're like, it's just too much. It's just too much. It's too much. <laughs> Mom. But, <laughs> but I know that when they walk out the door, they feel good. They know that they're fine, right? And they don't have to worry about um, the way that other people sort of look at them because they have that confidence that's been groomed into them from the womb. How about for you, Alelia, someone who's well, been groomed by a grooming family? <laughs> <laughs> well, Deneen is giving exactly the right advice. And I really am fortunate that my mother, when we did our hair ritual every day, always made me feel special. And those messages, especially from your mother, are really significant. And, and from your father, too, or from the men in your life. But the messages that mothers give are just so very, very important to give you the armor that you need when you go out into the world. Alilia Bundell's beauty historian. She's written biographies of Madam C.J. Walker, who happens to be her great-great-grandmother. Thank you so much for speaking with us. Mm-hmm. Deneen Milner, author and host of the Speakeasy with Deneen podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And Brandon Patton, co-founder of Evan Alexander Fine Grooming. Really appreciate you all coming in. Thank you. Now, last year, Lizzo said she was feeling good as hell, but I'm going to bring it back to a classic and play Nina Simone's Feeling Good hey. as we say goodbye. You know how I feel. It's a new dawn. It's a new day. It's a new On Second Thought has explored a number of aspects of black history this month. But before we go today, I want to bring your attention to 28 Days Is Not Enough. It's actually 29 this year. But the hashtag was started by the artist Joel Christian Gill a couple of years ago to stretch the celebration of African-American history beyond the shortest month of the year. If you listen to this show, you know that we love to explore many facets of history because all histories affect all of our presence. And now we head to Savannah, known for its rich history, graceful architecture, ghost stories, and art. Outside of the galleries in the sprawling SCAD campus, the Savannah Local Art Market, or SLAM, is selling art in a less conventional setting. Here's organizer Charles Ellis. It's on a baseball field, and there's a a chain-link fence that goes all the way around the baseball field. And so the artist gets a section of the fence. They can set up a tent or a canopy or tables with chairs or whatever, but it fits perfect. The now second annual slam runs Saturday, February 29th from 10 to 5 at the Salvation Army Corps Community Center's baseball field in Savannah. It is a free event with parking, and who knows? You could discover some great art in the outfield. You can find more at gpbnews.org. It's all the time we have today on Second Thought is produced by Priya Mahadevan. Supervising producer is Amelia Brock. Jesse Neiswanger and Jake Troyer are our engineers. Our intern is Julia Sanders. And executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thank you so much for spending some time with On Second Thought.